Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Larry Rudman. Larry is the author of American Jews and America's Game, Voices of a Growing Legacy in Baseball. Chosen as the number one baseball book in America for the year 2013, among many by Sports Collectors Digest, and now adapted into a musical play, Jews on First. Welcome, Larry. We're so glad to have a chance to visit with you. Glad to visit with you, Lisa, because I like the work that the uh, that uh, uh, the Yiddish Book Center does, and I think that Aaron Lansky is a great guy. Uh, Zvi Jankel, how do you pronounce his name? Yankelowitz? Yes. I think he's a wonderful person. He lives close by in Brookline, Massachusetts, where I live, and I, I you know, I really like the organization because save the language, save the culture. I guess, I guess is uh, so. I'm happy not only to be a member but a contributor, and the work you do out there is fantastic. Oh, well, Larry, thank you so much. Um, we we really appreciate that. I've been lucky enough to have a chance to visit with you once when you were out this way, and so glad to have a chance to talk baseball, especially on a day when we have 10 inches of snow on the ground. Oh, uh, yeah, we had a lot of snow here. Let it be known that um, I'm familiar with the ground out there because uh, I first came to Amherst in 1948 uh, when I uh, was a freshman at the University of Massachusetts, and I've kept up my relationship with the school naturally, no mighty me and the president and some other people out there, and uh, so it's a beautiful area. We we kind of like calling it home. So eager to ask you, what drew you to write about Jews in baseball? Well, you know, I've been a baseball player and a baseball fan since I started playing baseball, probably uh, before the end of the 1930s. My father took me to my first game in 1936 when I was five years old versus the Yankees. And uh, he took me to my maybe my second baseball game in 1940 uh, against the White Sox when Ted Williams hit a single and Jimmy Fox a home run, a uh, walk-off home run to uh, to uh, win the second game of the doubleheader that day. And uh, I've always loved baseball. And also, um, I think that I always felt that baseball was connected to America in a very special way for Jews uh, because, uh, you know, you can trace the history of the Jews in America uh, by tracing their connection with baseball in America, uh, as uh, as is taught in several universities, including at Tufts by Saul Gittleman, who was the provo over at Tufts in his uh, chapter in the book. So I think baseball, uh, you know, I think the the book I wrote is about, it's not just Jews in baseball, it's about everybody in baseball. Eighty percent of the people indexed in the book are not Jewish. And, uh, and I would say that it's about those people specifically because it's all based on personal face-to-face interviews, and their quotes uh, are all over the book. I mean, the, the stories I, I write are based on, uh, you know, talking with those people. So, uh, you know, the book is about America, and uh, uh, it's about Jews in America, and it's about the people. And so it's all of those things. I, I really consider it as much a cultural history of Jews in America as it is a baseball history. And I think that, uh, and I think the book is going to have a second life because of various things that are happening right now. I just wrote a memoir, uh, it's a 50 page memoir called um, My 82 Year Love Affair with Fenway Park from uh, Teddy Ballgame to Mookie Betts. And uh, that's going to be published nationally and uh, by two publishers, as a matter of fact. So I guess I've always been connected with baseball. I love baseball, very intricate game. It appeals to me like it appeals to a lot of Jews because. It's a very uh, heady game, uh, cerebral, if you want to put it that way. Um, so that, um, you know, I, I, that's, 
I could answer this question for a long time, Lisa, but I'm going to stop there. One of the things that I think I took away is that you did approach this as being both an American story, and I think it also tells the about the Jewish-American experience. And I wondered if you would talk about that a little bit. Well, I, you know, if you ask me to identify myself, I, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what I would say. I suppose I would say that I'm American, an American Jew, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person, uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I I go to temple once in a while, but I'm not observant as a Jew. But, you know, being a Jew is much more than just going to temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of rabbis who will tell you that, uh, you know, I used to think maybe I wasn't a, an observant Jew. I interviewed rabbis uh, for this book uh, the, uh, on American in, uh, American Judaism as connected to baseball and, and professors uh, at... Uh, Jewish schools, and they told me I was observant. I said, well, I, I didn't know that. And they said, well, you tell me about your life, and uh, the way you live your life seems to me to be observant. So I I, uh, I had a better opinion of myself as a Jew after talking talking to some of these people. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, American Judaism and America are very tied together because, you know, the values are very similar. I mean, sometimes you, you can't really disentangle Jewish values from American values, at least the America as we knew it until a few years ago. I mean, we don't know exactly in what direction we're going, but that's a whole another, another issue. Um, so um, I think uh, I think that uh, I always thought of the two as intertwined, and therefore I never thought I was writing a narrow book about uh, Jews in America or Jews in baseball. I always thought I was writing a broader book about the intersection of two great cultures, one of them ancient and one of them rather new, and uh, how uh, they can be described uh, presently through the voices of, um, of the people who are, were involved in that. You do this beautifully, and it's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit, just to pick up on what you were just talking about and sort of the question I'm wondering about, which is that intersection, and not necessarily talking about... Um, maybe the religious side of everything, but, you know, let's look at Hank Greenberg, who's somebody I'm familiar with. Uh, And his story, to me, really does illustrate the complexity of the Jewish-American experience and how some of that informed his career um, and decisions he had to make with his career, et cetera. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit for me? if If you think that he is somewhat representative. Well, not only do I think he's somewhat representative, I mean, he's my favorite Jewish American, and I really think that he's the greatest Jew of the 20th century, even greater than people like a naturalized citizen like Einstein, and a whole plethora of great Jewish people, because for whatever reason, uh, Jewish culture uh, produces great people. I mean, Nobel Prize winners and on and on. Uh, Again, that's another subject. Hank Greenberg Grew up uh, in the Bronx as a uh, in a very observant family. I think maybe his parents came from the old world. Uh, I'm not really, uh, you know, I'd have to think about look it up uh, to determine that. But I think so, and uh, I think he probably was off put a little bit by the uh, religiosity of it all, and sort of gave up being a strict uh, adherent uh, observant Jew. But he. No matter how much he felt he was away from the center of Judaism, Hank Greenberg was a Jew, acted like a Jew, had great Jewish characteristics, 
and did great things. And I'll tell you why I think he was the greatest Jew ever. I mean, first of all, um, you know, Jews sort of hid their, a lot of them hid their, uh, who they were up until the 1930s when they played Major League Baseball. A Cohen would suddenly become an O'Connell, and uh, so they, uh, they felt uncomfortable being Jewish in that milieu. But Hank came along, six feet four, handsome, talented, able to hit 58 home runs in a season, two less than, uh, and challenged Babe Ruth's record of 60, uh, drove in 183 runs one season, which is uh, second only to Lou Gehrig's 184 as the top figure ever in, American, in the American League. He was a great, great batter, and uh, he led the t- Tigers to, I think, four pennants and three World Championships, something like that, over the course of his career, even though he missed four years in the service. And in 19, you know, where could a more racially conscious and uh, anti-Semitic town be found in America in the 1930s when Nazism was rising in Germany uh, in a city like Detroit they had guys like Henry Ford telling people they should read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and uh, Father Coughlin was spewing out hatred, and comes along Hank Greenberg, who inspired Jews who were a much less firm ground then in terms of recognition of their culture in America and anti-Semitism, to become a hero to millions of Jews in America because on Yom Kippur in a crucial game in 1934, he sat it out. And, uh, you know, a lot of fans, uh, you know, blasted him for that. How can you do that? You're paid by the Tigers. How can you not play? And he chose to go to Temple on that particular day. And uh, so he was a great hero. Then he enlisted twice uh, in the, for the World War before, before Pearl Harbor, rose from the ranks to become a captain in the Far East, served four years, came back in 1945, won the pennant with a grand slam home run for the Tigers. Uh, then when he retired from baseball, he went on from there to become an owner and uh, a general manager and then an owner and crossed the line when Marvin Miller brought uh, Kurt Flood uh, suit to try and get rid of the reserve clause so that the players could bargain for their services, crossed the line and testified for the players, was a terrific father and uh, a great mentor to Ralph Kiner, not Jewish, uh, a teammate in his last season in the major leagues when he played with Pittsburgh in 1947. They became lifelong friends. He had all the qualities of a very, very fine Jewish person, and he meant so much to all of us Jews in America. And I remember him clearly because I'm 80. I saw him play, and uh, so my, you're asking the right person to tell you about Hank Greenberg because I love him. <laughs> and it comes out in, in your telling of his story so well. I mean, yeah, he's a great hero um, and an inspiring, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. Also, you talk a little bit in, well, you cover this in the book, Marvin Miller. How do you think he's emblematic, um, and how does his story speak to much of what you set out to tell in this book? Well, you know, it's, you're picking the people I love. Oh, well, good. <laughs> I'm, I Marvin, read... you know, yeah. you, you read the whole book? Well, no, I confess I did not read the whole book, but I will be finishing it. It's really good, and, uh, you know, for my brother, he would have been through it in a minute. Um, but uh, it's really interesting. Your whole take is really interesting. But let's talk about Marvin Miller. Well, Marvin Miller is just a great person. And, uh, you know, when I went to see him, you know, Marvin Miller got a real bad press. Why did he get a bad press? Because he took over the uh, representing the players back in the 1970s, I guess it was. And uh, 
you know, the owners didn't like him, and they had a lot of connections in the press, and they demonized him that he was, uh, uh, you know, he was not a nice guy. He wanted to be the commissioner. He was in, you know, like a like a pipsqueak Jew from Brooklyn or something. That he uh, that he was a distasteful person. So um, when I came to his apartment in Manhattan, he was 90 years old at the time. You know, I didn't know what I was going to think. And Marvin, his, his, the demeanor of Marvin Miller is very gentle. And within, and we spoke for three hours, three hours without me turning off the switch of the digital voice recorder. Why? Because I was so interested and he was so interested, so interested that he signaled his wife to break a doctor's appointment to continue the discussion. At first I looked at him, I said, you know, this, this doesn't seem to be, this seems to be like a nice guy. And then, you know, as, as he talked in his gentle, quiet, but determined manner, I, I began to develop a you know a, a, a attitude towards him like he uh, so that he was a buncular like my uncle and then like a like a grandfather and I you know that's the only time we ever met in our lives and uh, uh, I, at the end of that interview I loved him and uh, we could, we kept communicating right up until the time five years later when he died when I called him up three weeks before he was going to pass away um, that was when his portrait was hung on the Supreme Court, the only non-Supreme Court justice to be in the Supreme Court because he was his life was so intertwined in his former position as the economist for the Steelworkers Union with Arthur Goldberg, uh, whose portrait was going up there as a Supreme Court justice, and uh, so that I wanted to read to him something that I had added just before the book went to press that came to my attention about that picture being hung, and I wanted to read it to him because... Uh, the punchline of that, because the owners prevented his ever getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame, where he should be, and uh, so that, um, and he still is not there. So I read it, the punchline was good enough for the Supreme Court, but not good enough for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he wasn't going to come to the phone, but then when the person who was with him said it was me, uh, he came to the phone. That was our last conversation. I think both of us knew it was our last conversation. He died three weeks later. And uh, but Marvin Miller, uh, why am I thinking of it? Because not only was he a great Jew, he grew up in Brooklyn, and you know, relatively poor circumstances, and uh, went on to a. He was not a lawyer. Went on to a very successful career as, as, as I say, an economist. He was a great American because what he did for the players for relatively, he, he wasn't. It wasn't for money. I mean, as he said to me in that article, you know, it, it was wrong uh, under the laws of the United States that these guys. Uh, we're, we're in a state of servitude. I mean, they get paid an enormous sum these days. Now, one could say, well, why should a guy get $10 million a year? But that's not the point. They were at the disposal of the owners for the longest time, and what the owners decided they would pay them was what they got paid. Everybody said, Ted Williams, $100,000. Wow, that's a lot of money. I mean, you know, even then, uh, in, in a free market situation, which they should have been in, Ted Williams would have been paid five, six, eight million dollars because, you know, you'd hang around the ballpark to watch him bet uh, in, in a game the Sox were being blown out of simply because he was a model of what a batsman should be. So they were getting underpaid, and uh, he took that as a uh, as a, something that had to be done in an open democracy to achieve fairness for these people, and that was his interest. Not money, but, you know, he, he was a great American and a great Jew, and Marvin Miller was also an extremely likable human being. 
Well, let me ask you uh, one more and see if this is another favorite of yours, because I was <laughs> totally intrigued. Um, I grew up with an older brother who collected baseball cards like crazy um, and actually got me to trade with him every once in a while. I had no idea that there was a series of Jewish baseball player cards. Tell me about oh, really? the man and the story behind these collectibles. Yeah, well, well yeah, uh, Marty Abramowitz um, lives in Newton, which is very close to Brookline, where I live. And uh, matter of fact, uh, the two of us are going to speak along with Sal Gittleman, the former Provo of Tufts, and Adair, A-E-D-E-R from Chicago, who um, uh, began a Jewish baseball museum out there. At the, and another guy named Wexler, who helped Marty put put out a book recently about these baseball cards. So the five of us are going to be talking, I think, on April 7th at the Ohabai Sholem, which is a, a historical old temple in Brookline right on Beacon Street that looks like an old temple. I mean, it has that, that look of a temple. And uh, that should be a very well-attended affair. I, now, may, I, a, I may join you for that one. Thank you. Oh, that would be nice if you would come, Lisa. We'd be happy to have you. And um, so that uh, it's under the auspices of the temple, I guess. And, uh, you know, I think that um, Marty was very helpful to me because the similarity in, between the title of the work he did, which predates the book that I wrote, uh, is very similar to American Jews and America's Game. And, you know, he, he, uh, he said that I could take that title because it was so appropriate. And he also helped me in several other ways. I called it a trifecta. So Marty uh, was extremely helpful to me. He's also a very colorful guy, and he uh, he, he speaks in a way that um, will draw a lot of laughs and a lot of interest. And the way it arose is that uh, he used to go to card fairs with his son, who's now an adult, but at that time uh, they collected cards. But, you know, um, I guess Tops and other companies put out cards from a long time ago, way back to 1900, when Honus Wagner was playing. And uh, but all, but uh, not all the Jews had cards. And father and son. And I think you know, um, Marty wanted to get his son interested in something. So when the two of them realized that all the Jews didn't have cards, as I remember the story, his son said to him, "Well, why don't you, you know, have the, why don't you publish or arrange?" for the other people to have cards. And so that's how Marty got in it. He formerly had worked for many Jewish organizations, but by that time he was getting to, you know, retirement age. And I think now he's probably 80 or something like that. And uh, so he went to work on that, and it became a it became a passion because he felt that they all should have cards, and uh, ultimately they all do have cards, and that's because of Marty Abramovitz, and uh, it gave him a, a real honored place in uh, Jewish lore, I guess you would call it, and Jewish baseball lore especially. And uh, so those cards uh, were published in connection with the American Jewish Historical Society. So the profits from those, which were considerable, uh, went to, a lot of it went to the American Jewish Historical Society. One, uh, Some of it went to Marty, why not? And uh, it's become sort of a very favorite thing among people, that all the Jewish players should have cards. Some are household names, some are just, were ordinary players, and some had a cup of coffee in the major leagues. But it honors um, American, it honors Jewish participation in American sports, and it honors American Judaism. So that, uh, you know, I think Marty should get a lot of credit for what he did. And also, as I refer to, he was, you know, very helpful to me 
And uh, he wrote the uh, introduction to my book, and he's very, you know, very bright guy, so that I, I, I read it and I said, what did he say? <laughs> so I went back <laughs> and I read it again in order to fully comprehend what he wrote. And what he wrote was, uh, you know, uh, deep as well as broad. Yeah, I understood it the second time. I would be unhappy if I had to wait it three times. Twice was enough. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it's, 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 I'm glad that introduction is in the book because he explains the concept of Jews in baseball uh, and Jews in America and getting away from the center and how a lot of Jews are going beyond the pale, if I can use that word, of being a Jew. He, he got all that into it, and, he le- and that lends some of the gravitas to the book that you just spoke about. When you set out to tell the story, were you surprised with the resulting story? Uh, yeah, I think so, because uh, I think I had a more narrow concept when I started out. I think I thought I was writing about Jews and baseball, but it didn't but didn't take, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I've, I was, I've been a lawyer all my professional life, uh, and um, that began in 1958, uh, and uh, it continues even today, although pro bono, the latest is a threat on my property line to me and my neighbors that arose just a few days ago where it's going to become a legal case, and they've asked me to represent us, um, myself and the four or five other people. So it's a very challenging case, intellectually challenging, because as uh, uh, as um, was said years ago by uh, the French guy, well, it's slipping me, you'll come up with it, that the town uh, is the best representation of American democracy there is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, uh, but this case is involved, it, it's very challenging uh, to, to a lawyer, but uh, in any event, um, the uh, uh, bring me back uh, to your question again. How did you put it? Um, I was curious if you were surprised with the sort of resulting story. You know, I figure you st- you set out and then yeah, you know, you know the telling. Piano, yeah, you're right. As I got into it, I, I I really realized that what I was writing about was much broader. That I was writing about America as well as Jews in America, and um, so. Um, that was very satisfying because, um, as I said to my wife when I, uh, maybe 15 or 18 years ago when I started writing, I, I said in a rather brash way, I think I'll become an historian, never really understanding how far that would go and that I would become, my papers would be collected and uh, would be elected a member of the, of the uh, uh, Massachusetts Historical Society, a fellow. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff has followed from that. But um, what happened is that um, I soon realized that I was writing m- about much more than baseball. I was writing about America, and I was writing about democracy, and writing about Jews advancing in American society. I realized I was writing about a, a lot of people who were very amazing people, not only Hank Greenberg, but uh, several of the Jewish players that I interviewed I found to be extremely intelligent and hardworking and committed people, and it just became larger, and I went along with the flow, and this happens to a lot of authors. They start out in one place, and they end up someplace else, and uh, someplace else that they end up in is much broader. And, you know, I had difficulty getting the whole thing published because my agent wanted me to have to do a 300-page book and got a little upset with me when I 
said, no, this should be 550-page book and should have 80 illustrations. And uh, it didn't convince him, but it convinced the publisher, and they printed the book that I wanted, and that book has been successful. Well, it's infinitely readable. It's really engaging. I thank you for writing it. Um, for those of us, myself, uh, who are not as knowledgeable, it's a great way through the stories that you tell to really understand both the game and the relationship of the Jewish story to the game and to sort of the larger, you know, again, tapestry. Yeah, I'd just like to come back one second yeah. and say that, you know, um, I, you know, I appreciate your remarks, but I don't think anything I've done compares with uh, what's being done out at the Yiddish Book Center. I was out there and visited uh, on one of the festivals within the last year and ate and had dinner over at Aaron Lansky's house. And I admire Aaron tremendously. I mean, when I read his first book, I know he's working on the second one, I just was entranced by the commitment and the story he told and the formation of the Yiddish Book Center. It's just a great, great thing. And uh, he he's a very, uh, you know, uh, if you put what he's done up against his own personal persona and his wife as well. They're so friendly and uh, and easy to be with and easy to talk to. And, I, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm really happy that I, that I got to know about the organization and, uh, and I'm able to to do some something with them because I think that, as I said before, saving the Yiddish language, which is, which is where I put some of my contributions, is really to save the culture, and I think the culture is worth saving. And also, you've contributed to the storytelling aspect of it, which is, uh, you know, a great, a, a great thing. Thank you. Um, so, before I let you go, one quick question, and I might, I might get in trouble here. Red Sox fan? Oh yeah. Not a Yankees fan. No, no. Okay. I grew up with Yankees, no. so I'm always curious as now someone who lives in Massachusetts. So Red Sox, for sure. Yeah, you know, my uh, agent, uh, not only my agent, my publicist for this book was Marty Appel. Now, Marty Appel, mm -hmm. in, his, in his 20s, was the publicist for the Yankees under uh, Steinbrenner. And now is, and, you know, I think he's retired more or less. But he certainly within the last few years, he was the top baseball agent uh, in America. And, uh, excuse me, publicist in America. And um, he's a very, uh, he really got me started on this because uh, when the Israel Baseball League started several years ago, uh, I wanted to go there and uh, uh, Marty uh, invited me over and then we exchanged emails uh, the whole time I was there and he was there and I met a lot of uh, people uh, and interviewed five or six of them, former Jewish major leaguers who were managing teams over in Israel so that, um, you know, without him, even though he's a big Yankee and he wrote the history of the Yankees, uh, Pinstripe, Empire, Pinstripe Empire or something like that, that got me started. That was important. I might never have written the book without him. So the Yankees, after all, they do have something to say. Um, well, thank you again for joining me today, Larry. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners, the name of the book is American Jews and America's Game, Voices of a Growing Legacy in Baseball. If you'd like to purchase a copy, which I encourage you to do, uh, you can do so by visiting shop.yiddishbookcenter.org. I just want to say one other thing. First of all, you know, thank you for what you just said. And uh, I think that um, I'd like the people to know that I'm currently writing a book on classical music, and I'm fortunate to be meeting a lot of world stars, uh, really famous people. And that is a real fun project. And it really doesn't have a lot to do with Judaism except a lot of those Several of those people are Jewish, but um, and if I do that one, 
I will have covered in three books, uh, four books, uh, my major interests. Um, who would think that, well, there are a lot of people who love baseball and they love classical music, and all music, as a matter of fact, so I'm doing that one. And Take Me Out to the Ball Game is a classic. No. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. And that was written by a couple of guys that never went to a game. <laughs> you, never, you never know. The backstory is always an interesting thing to find out about. Um, I was I was going to share, and I will do that in a minute, um, where people can go on the World Wide Web, as I like to say, to find out more about your work. And one of, uh, one of your sites is Jews on First Musical. Can you quickly tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the, I think the major site to go to to find out about this book, and there's a, a world of stuff on there. I mean, appearances and news and uh, just a lot of stuff is, is uh, the name of the book, America's, American Jews in America's Game dot com. Uh, the idea for Jews on First, uh, was, which is a, a nice title that, uh, that I didn't come up with, somebody else came up with, based on the old uh, Abbott and Costello routine, um, and that play has been presented in Boston and New York, but the one of the playwrights and myself are now rewriting it uh, to be a, um, an hour or an hour and 15 minutes long without intermission and doing it in a different way, including some of the skits in the original play, but also with connective material that I'm writing and music um, and lyrics of the songs that are, were in it. And we think that it's going to be a great vehicle not only for the for the uh, Yiddish Book Center, but uh, you know a lot of Jewish organizations nationally. Um, the way we're rewriting it, it'll be um, it'll have a serious edge, but most of it, um, you know, like a musical. And um, I think that it'll Jewish community centers, temples, all these Jewish venues um, will like it. We hope, and um, so uh, and I think it gets the the kind of message across that you seem to indicate that you got out of the book itself. So we're looking forward to that. As are we. So, again, thank you for joining us today. And uh, keep telling stories. You're a great storyteller. You're a great interviewer. And fun to have you here. And look forward to seeing you at the center again sometime soon. Well, Lisa, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, I always look forward to uh, to talking because, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm lucky to have so much enthusiasm for what I do. And uh I enjoy it uh, immensely, as you, as I think you probably can pick up from the way I speak about it. And again, we, we enjoy what you have to say and what you have to write. Um, so thank you, and uh, look forward to our next visit. Okay, Lisa, thank you very much. Okay. I'll uh, hope to see you soon. Say hello to everybody and, out there for me. And, and greetings from all of, all of your fans out here. All right. <laughs> all right. Be well. Thank you. Bye thank bye. you. Stay well. Yes, bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Zeke Levine, fellow at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode 95, Lisa Newman's 2015 conversation with Jeremy Cohen, founder of Schmaltz Brewing Company. Until next time, be well, be healthy, sei gesund.